Hello, and welcome to Season of the Bitch, the leftist podcast that will not stop talking about abortions. Today we have Kellen, Zoe, Ozzy, and Laura. And today we're going to be talking about the history of abortion. We are all waiting for the inevitable at this point, the Supreme Court ruling in Dobbs v. Jackson Women's Health that will almost certainly overturn Roe v. Wade and Planned Parenthood v. Casey. In the context of this ruling, which should be dropping any day now, um, we thought it would be good to go through the history of abortion practices and abortion rights for a few reasons. Um, First of all, because abortion has not always been the controversial thing it is now. I think it's important to understand that a highly regulated atmosphere around abortion is not the natural and inevitable state of things, just like capitalism isn't the natural and inevitable state of things. And when we denaturalize the horrible conditions that we're facing, I think it makes it easier for us to imagine a world where things are different. Um, The other reason we wanted to talk about this is because part of the reasoning in the court um, or the part of the reasoning of the court rather in the leaked Dobbs draft was that legal abortion doesn't have a place in U.S. history. And as you'll see by the end of this episode, that is clearly not the case. So we're going to talk today first about the millenniums long history of abortion practices all around the globe and like We're not going to be completely thorough in this. We're just jumping around a bit to give you samples of a bunch of different things that were going on for, like I said, literally millennia. Um, And then we're going to look at some of the history of abortion and abortion regulation in the United States specifically. So with all that being said, let's dive in. Yeah. Yeah. We won't be telling you everything that's happened over all the millennia of um, human existence, but Kevin <laughs> could, our doctor of history, thank you very much. Have to make it known on every episode, <laughs> especially every history episode. But yeah, so we're going to talk about some um, more ancient abortion practices. The first thing I wanted to share, though, is not specific about abortion, but I wanted to talk about the earliest known fertility regulation. And so the earliest evidence came from some archaeological findings from ancient sites in the Mediterranean region. And they studied the, quote, pelvic, uh, sorry, no, the air quotes are for female pelvic bones that were studied for changes associated with childbirth um, in order to essentially find the average number of children that people were having in that society at that time. And so the estimates showed that in 2000 BCE, it was around five childbirths, which was down to 4.7 by 1500 BCE, and that continued to decrease to 3.4 childbirths in 120 uh, common era. And so this likely indicates that during this time, people with uteruses were figuring out how to regulate their fertility. Um, From that study in particular, there isn't further information on like how they were doing that, but it indicates that people were beginning to figure out how to control how many children they were having or how not to have children essentially. Um, and so that could be abortion related, but undetermined. And then to get into ancient abortion specifically, the first documentation of herbal abortions is found in Eber's scroll, which is one of the largest Egyptian pap- papyrus scrolls, which dated from 1550 to 1500 BCE. And it contained prescriptions for a variety of ailments And that included what was called, quote, recipes that are made for women, which specifically included instructions for herbal abortions for during what they referred to as all three periods. And that's what we now call the trimesters of a pregnancy. And so for a little context on the main types of herbal abortions um, that were used and sometimes still are, there's three groups of herbs um, that are understood to have been used. And the first Um, are now called implantation inhibitors. And these are herbs that prevent a fertilized egg from implanting to the uterine rolls. And so this is basically like a proto plan B. Um, That's what plan B does. And then the next category is called eminonagogues. And these herbs simulate blood flow to the pelvis, which helps to um, induce menstruation and just kind of clear anything out. And then the third category known as oxytocic herbs imitate oxytocin in the body, and that helps to induce uterine contractions and clear out any cells. 
And just for like some context here, for anyone who's not familiar with the process of modern medication abortion, you typically first take um, mifepristone, which stops the pregnancy from continuing. And then about 48 hours later, or sometimes right after, um, kind of depending on how far along the pregnancy is, you take misoprostone, uh, misoprostol, which softens the cervix and induces contraction to clear out the pregnancy. And so we're really not talking about drastically different processes than we use now. It's just more modern medication that we're using to do more or less the same like process. Yeah, totally. I wanted to talk a little bit about abortion specifically within like the origins of what we might call Western medicine. Um, basically the tradition of medical knowledge that like a lot of doctors and most medical schools in the U S still see themselves as being part of. Um, so this line of medical knowledge sort of began in ancient Greece and Rome, and this was taking place around like 500 BC to 500 AD. So kind of that like thousand year time span around zero year zero. Um, and one of the most important medical texts within this tradition is the Hippocratic Oath, which people may have heard of. Um, it was probably written sometime between 400 and 200 BC. And a common myth that surrounds the Hippocratic Oath is that Hippocrates like refused to perform abortions or said that it was something doctors shouldn't do. Um, and this comes from a line of the oath that reads, uh, this is obviously a translation, quote, I will give no deadly medicine to anyone if asked, nor suggest any such counsel. And in like manner, I will not give to a woman a pessary to produce abortion, unquote. Um, Republican politicians often cite the Hippocratic Oath specifically as a reason that abortion shouldn't be part of Western healthcare. Um, when I was like researching this episode, I just saw, for example, when Utah Senator Mike Lee introduced the Abortion is Not Healthcare Act in 2020. Um, he put up a statement on his website about the Hippocratic Oath, claiming that the oath bans abortion, and that is a reason why we shouldn't have abortion. Mikey, um, um, enemy of the pod. Yeah, so, so mm. true. They also loved homosexuality back then. Just a little point. To- Just saying. Yeah. So... I think this is, you know, a problem for a few reasons. First of all, we definitely don't need to be tied to taking medical advice from thousands of years ago. Notably in this section that I just read, Hippocrates also seems to be saying that he would be against assisted suicide. And I don't think that means that like doctors today have to follow that, especially given the advances in prolonging life that the medical field has made that really makes like end of life care um, and compassionate suicide more of a uh, relevant topic for us today than it would have been in that time. Um, But separately from that, there has also been more historical research that has confirmed that Hippocrates was actually just saying he wouldn't use that specific abortion method. Uh, So what he calls a pessary, which basically involves like inserting medication near the cervix um, because these methods at that time tended to have a higher risk of death for the parent. And so he was sort of saying like, I wouldn't do something that would kill someone and I wouldn't do this because it would also kill like the mother or the parent of the child, um, not because it was abortion. Um, So Greek doctors did commonly perform abortion using other methods, which included pills taken orally, uh, different herbs taken orally, and also methods like kind of like excessive exercise or like putting physical pressure on the womb or like shaking or jumping type motions, um, which it's sort of like now we know that a lot of those things don't work unless there's like a very traumatic type of fall. But um, those were like some different methods that people would try and they often would do like a combination of several things. So it wasn't necessarily clear, like which one actually worked. Um, I also found this quote from Aristotle that I thought was interesting. He wrote quote, when couples have children in excess, let abortion be procured before sense and life have begun. What may or may not be lawfully done in these cases depends on the question of life and sensation, unquote. Um, So this seems to suggest that there was some time limit on when abortion could be performed, but it wasn't limited to cases where the life of the parent was threatened. It could also just be like he's saying in this case, because someone like didn't want to have more kids or because 
they felt like their family was the right size at this point. Then moving on to ancient Rome, um, in ancient Roman texts, historians have found some of the earliest evidence of surgical abortion methods. Um, for example, in the poet Ovid's first book, which is called Amores, uh, meaning love, of course, he describes an abortion using surgical instruments. Um, I think to be fair about like what the context was here, he does describe it pretty negatively. Um, it, at least within this poem, like the character who's describing it is really upset about it. Um, but he sort of frames it as like, it's compared to like what men experience in war and then childbirth and abortion are presented as like women's version of that quote unquote. So, you know, that obviously has like something of a negative connotation now, but I do think it's cool that it's acknowledging that these are really like difficult, complicated, serious moments in a person's life, not necessarily only positive or only negative. Um, and typically abortion wasn't really seen as a big problem in Roman communities as long as it was within a framework that was like otherwise supporting the status quo. Uh, so, for example, it was often frowned upon for a married woman to independently use contraceptives or abortion methods. But that was at least as much because it was like doing something without your husband's permission as because of the abortion itself. Um, basically, as long as the father of the child didn't have an issue with it and everyone involved had enough money to pay for it, abortion wasn't really viewed as a negative or tightly regulated. Uh, Roman law even said, quote, the embryo is namely before it is born a part of the woman, specifically of the internal organs. And it is said that an embryo not yet born is not a real person, unquote. Um, some historians have estimated that ancient Roman practitioners had more than 200 different abortion drugs, and around 90% of those were effective. Um, so it was something that was pretty readily available as long as you had the financial and like social capital means to access it. Um, there were different regulations regarding when abortion was no longer allowed, like what point in a pregnancy it was still considered acceptable, um, or if there was a point where they felt like now this is an independent life. Um, but across both ancient Greece and Rome, it sort of ranged from like three to seven months into pregnancy, but the limit at least by the time of like later in the Roman Empire was about five to seven months. Um, which kind of, I mean, seven months is like something that would be considered late now. Um, so I just think it's interesting that they just had like very different ideas around what, like when a fetus was a fetus and when it was a baby. And they also differ from like a lot of people's current uh, feelings about that. Yeah. And like on the note of the Greeks and the Romans and abortions, I just wanted to take a quick second to talk about silphium, which is a plant that the Greeks and the Romans used to prevent and to end pregnancy. Um, and if you're not familiar with it, that's because it's extinct now and has been for literally thousands of years. And that's because the Romans literally used it so much that they killed it off. Like that's how many <laughs> abortions the Romans were having. Just in case there was any doubt after hearing everything Ozzy said. Romans people. were fucking. Yeah. <laughs> they were fucking and they were having them, honestly. <laughs> Jumping ahead a little bit, after this uh, long history of people with uteruses openly being able to perform and have abortions, beginning in the 1400s to 1700s, there's a large cultural shift. Especially like in Europe we're talking about, right? Yes. Currently okay. talking about in Europe. Okay, cool. And Just to clarify. Totally. Does anyone know what else was happening during those years? Um, <laughs> that's right. The witch hunts. Maybe you've heard of them. Great answer. <laughs> so during this time, performing an abortion or even knowing how to perform an abortion became a really dangerous liability, essentially. People with this knowledge were often killed or in the best case scenario, they were scared into silence, into not performing abortions. Midwives specifically were a particular target during that time due to their knowledge of herbal birth control and abortions. Um, and during that time period, specifically the Christian church, along with the then growing Western science and medicine, um, 
profession were specifically seeking to wipe out the, quote, women healers who had previously been honored in their communities because they were really the main ones with this healing knowledge. And this led to a lot of the ancient information that we were just talking about that had been passed down primarily as oral history um, to no longer exist. And so what we're talking about today is really just scratching the surface of the information that is still available and the information that's been known all of this time. But I also wanted to note in terms of the stance on abortion and this will come into play later as well. And we get more into um, the actual case for Roe versus Wade is that at this time, it, it wasn't about the morality of having an abortion that people thought that abortions were evil and, and really things like that. It was specifically about that, like women needed to be home having babies. And we've talked about the witch hunts, of course, many times before, but it's about, you know, needing to reproduce the work, workforce and needing women to be doing this reproductive labor. It wasn't like, oh, abortion is bad, but it was that women and people perceived as women at the time shouldn't be doing that because they need to be having babies. Yeah, totally. Um, I think that goes well into what I wanted to talk about a little bit next, which is um, abortion methods in China during this period of time. Um, Since abortion in China was a common practice, at least by the 1300s, which is kind of a similar period of time. um, I think it's just interesting to think about the differences in what was happening in these two parts of the world at this time. Um, So feminist historians have found that there were a lot of euphemisms used around pregnancy termination within elite households in many parts of China. Um, An early pregnancy was sometimes referred to as a quote unquote menstrual blockage. And the medical reasoning used was essentially that it was unhealthy for women to not have their period So they needed to take, quote unquote, herbs for delayed menstruation to solve the problem. Um, And this type of practice is thought to have been fairly normalized in elite households where wealthy women would take contraceptives or use abortion methods to avoid childbirth, while sex workers or maids who were part of the household would be expected to also have sex with the man who was the head of household and give birth to his heirs. So it was sort of a way for like wealthier women or wives of wealthier men to avoid that reproductive labor and push it off onto working class women instead. Um, Beyond those specific cases, Chinese doctors during this time had access to several methods of abortion. Um, There's some disagreement among historians about how often and how readily these methods were shared with people who actually needed abortions. Um, I don't know of a case like Silphium where like a plant literally went extinct because so many abortions were happening. Um, But it is definitely true that there were herbal practitioners of all genders who knew of these methods and were able to share recipes with people who needed them, um, which I guess at least for me makes it seem more likely that they could be slightly more accessible since it wasn't just like tightly controlled by a like top-down medical establishment that was like only cis men. Um, And a lot of these methods included various combinations of plants and animal extracts, which would often be taken in like a powdered form in a pill. Um, So you know, kind of similar to like what a medication abortion could look like today. Um, One review of Chinese medical texts from the 1600s to the 1900s found that about 5% of volumes contained information about abortion, which might seem low, but I think considering that a lot of these texts were like multi-volume encyclopedias where each book would cover a different topic, I think 5% might actually be kind of a high number that discuss abortion and methods for it. Anyway, I guess I just think it's interesting to see how at various times in various parts of the world, abortion has been fairly widespread and normalized. And like Zoe was saying, like not seen as something necessarily immoral, um, or even like I was talking about with wealthier women pushing off reproductive labor to servants. um, It wasn't even always inherently related to like feminism or a broader like solidarity amongst women and people with uteruses or like ability for people to have control of their bodies. Um, 
we're going to get more into the increasing restrictions and regulations around abortion that have happened more recently. But I also feel like it's always good to be thinking about ways that like social practices like abortion, which are very heavily politicized in our current moment, were conceptualized differently in other times and places, because I feel like that helps us think about other possible frameworks and ways that abortion could be treated or thought about in our current time and place. Yeah, I I wanted to just like conclude because there were huge swaths of the world that we didn't talk about with the sort of comment that in much of the parts of the world that were colonized by European powers, um, it's likely that abortion was going on in some capacity. It had various sort of social valences, depending on where we're talking about. But one of the sort of goals of colonial states was frequently to exert control over the reproductive capacity of people living in states that had been colonized. And so... Um, without going into a lot of detail, places in Africa, places in Asia, places in South America, all had practices of birth control, of abortion, again, with sort of various social mores around them. But um, as we'll see, there was a big push from a white Euro-American Christian bloc to make abortion illegal, to make abortion unthinkable for reasons that we'll get into. Um, And that was kind of exported to the colonies as well. So I just wanted to say that like, you know, there's this line from from anthropologists that like abortion happened everywhere, basically. And that is kind of the moral of the story here. And I wanted to then sort of get into stuff that was happening in the United States specifically, um, because that is, I think, some good background for thinking about the upcoming draft ruling that we've gotten. And as I mentioned at the top, that draft opinion um, included a quote from Alito, the, the author, that a right to abortion is not deeply rooted in the nation's history and traditions. Um but as you might imagine, having heard um, the stuff we've been talking about so far, um, Americans have been like having abortions since before the United States was even a thing. So as a couple of examples, like Slate recently published an article about how Ben Franklin um, included a recipe for abortifacence in one of his books that was written during the colonial period. And on the other end of things, enslaved people, um, and it's worth noting that for enslaved people, birth was especially fraught because their children were literally born as property under the slave regime. Um, Enslaved people also relied on abortifacence. So cotton roots is one example. They were known to have abortifacent properties if chewed, and some enslavers would actually try to prevent enslaved women from chewing cotton roots and keep that kind of detritus from the plant away from enslaved people um, as a means to control their reproduction. And it was also known, um, according to narratives that, uh, that were recorded after the end of slavery, that Um, a few drops of turpentine could also be used to induce a miscarriage in a pinch. So all of this to say that abortion was as American as apple pie. And as late as the 1840s, doctors who specialized in abortion started commercializing. And by that, I mean advertising them, their services, really raking in the dough. And abortion was regulated to some degree at this time, which we'll get into in a minute, But through much of the country, abortion before what was called the quickening was legal. And I just wanted to pause for a moment and talk about what the quickening is. So quickening is a term that was much more common, like, you know, 200 plus years ago, and was used to describe the moment when a pregnant person could feel the baby kicking or moving inside them. So before this period, generally abortion was not considered a problem. Um, English common law, which formed the basis of the new law, of law rather in the new United States, generally allowed for termination before the quickening. And that usually occurs between like 16 to 25 weeks of pregnancy. So I wanted to just take a minute and do something I normally would do with like my classes with the co-hosts, if that's okay. And just talk about this advertisement. Um, And so this comes from a book by historian James C. Moore. It's an advertisement that was published in the Boston Daily Times um, in 1845. And it says, 
particular attention given to all female complaints. Dr. Carswell's methods of treating th these diseases is such as to remove the difficulty in a few days, strict secrecy observed, and no pay taken unless a cure is performed. And I just wanted to like ask y'all like what, because I think there's so many things going on here, like what jumps out to you in seeing and reading and hearing like this advertisement? I feel like the first thing that jumps out to me is like the no pay taken unless a cure is performed part just because it makes it seem like it was common for it not to work and people mm. to feel like they were getting scammed. But yeah, that's so interesting. Yeah. Also, just like the word diseases is jumping out at me. Yeah. That's what I was thinking. <laughs> yeah, I think so. I think there's a couple of things going on that y'all have like absolutely picked up on. So they never explicitly talk about pregnancy or abortion or fetus or anything. It's female complaints, diseases, and then cures. Um, so it's sort of like all sort of tongue in cheek or whatever. We're not explicitly saying what the issue is, but it's very clear to anybody reading it what it is. And it's also like, you know, there's a lot of, this is an era of like quack doctors, of medicinal cures that are given sort of the trappings of authenticity, but don't actually do anything. So Ozzy, I think that what you're pointing to as well is like this developing question of like, how much do we trust a medical establishment, which we'll also get into. But I just thought this was super interesting because to have something like this, which again, isn't explicitly saying abortion, but is clearly about abortion in like the paper of record for one of the biggest cities in America in 1845 is like pretty wild, especially when we get into the arrival of anti-abortion laws. Um, so the first law to explicitly explicitly outlaw abortion after the quickening in the United States was passed in 1821 in Connecticut. And then eight years later, New Boo. York made, yeah, Connecticut, also, enemy of the pod. Yeah. <laughs> I already hated Connecticut. Now I hate them more. Um, yeah. And unfortunately, as someone that loves New York, you hate to hear about this. Um, eight years later, New York actually made pre-quickening abortions a misdemeanor um, while also making post-quickening abortions a felony. But it's important to note that these laws, as well as the others that were passed in the United States for like the, the next 20 years, were directed at abortion practitioners and not the people who were receiving abortions. So this effort that was really focused on criminalizing abortionists was part of a larger, you know, front that was basically part of the, the burgeoning medical field trying to push midwives and herbalists and other often female practitioners out of a space that an increasingly professionalized class of doctors was trying to take over. So this is kind of a continuation of what Zoe was talking about that was happening in Europe as well. And these attempts really started to bear fruit in the second half of the 19th century. So the American Medical Association or the AMA was established and like one of their primary goals was to severely restrict abortion. And part of this was to take it out of the hands of women practitioners. Part of it was like a quote unquote scientific concern about the fact that abortion was in that time becoming increasingly common, not just among poor women, but um, among white women of some standing and social Darwinism, which like a lot of late 19th century doctors believed in suggested the lower birth rate among the upper classes was going to lead to the downfall of the Anglo-Saxon race and or the Protestant race, especially when compared to the birth rates of poor Catholic immigrants. And um, this was also an issue when people talked about the birth rates of Black people as well. So, you know, we're hearing about the Great Replacement Theory today. I think you can't untangle that from abortion regulation in the United States, um, whether in 2022 or in 1862. And finally, much of this push to eliminate abortion rights was motivated by like plain and simple misogyny. So I'm quoting James Moore again. Um, he wrote that most doctors were bitterly condemning what one of them called the quote, non-infantomania that afflicted the nation's women and desperately decrying the unwillingness of American wives to remain in their places bearing children, end quote. When these doctors, especially through the mouthpiece of the AMA, pushed legislation to make abortion illegal, they were specifically advocating for legislation that would criminalize pregnant people seeking abortions this time, not just the people providing it, which is an important shift. And to kind of wrap this up, 
um, it's important to note that the legislation that would be in place through the pre-Roe era was established during this time in the 1860s through the 1880s as a result, in part, of this massive campaign waged by the medical establishment. So these efforts, I should also note, were aided in part by the passage of the Comstock Laws, which were passed in 17, or 1873. They outlawed using the U.S. Postal Service um, to distribute any form of obscenity. And this is often discussed in the context of written obscenity, but it also outlawed the mailing of contraceptives and abortifacients. And at the same time, places that had previously not governed abortion at all had zero abortion regulations on the books, like Georgia, went from zero to 100 basically immediately. So the first law that Georgia passed about abortion was passed in 1876 and made abortion, quote, an assault with intent to murder. Um, And this law remained in place virtually unchanged through the 1960s. So all of this is happening, it's important to note, in the context of increased organized feminist activity. The doctors who were looking to criminalize abortion were making their moves at the exact same time as what we might refer to as first wave feminism becoming increasingly powerful. And while it's important to note that advocates advocates rather for abortion are not always doing so in the context of what we today might consider feminism, anti-abortion activism has always been about controlling women. And especially in the United States, it's been about controlling women, or more accurately, the people that conservatives perceive to be women. And this trend continued throughout the 20th century. That just reminded me of when Biden was asked how many genders there are, and he was like, at least three. three. (laughs) One of my favorite moments. Only good thing he's ever done, in my opinion. Yeah, absolutely. (laughs) Literally, yeah, the only good quote I can think of, but that just... Anyway, popped in my head. Anyway, I digress. Um, So with that, from our doctor of early American history, (laughs) um, yeah, I want to talk a little about the Roe v. Wade case specifically. And we talked about this a little on our episode on the rise of the religious right. But even though today evangelicals are really the backbone of the anti-abortion movement in the U.S. That has not always been the case. Prior to Roe v. Wade, um, it was really considered a, quote, Catholic issue and did not, evangelicals did not particularly really have a stance on abortion. Many Christian groups vehemently opposed Roe v. Wade um, because it was a threat to family values if people were not forced to carry pregnancies they did not want to have, but not because they were morally against abortion per se. So like I was saying earlier, it was more about women need to be home or people they're perceiving as women need to be home having babies, not like abortion is evil and you're murdering babies. Just like go home and have them, please. So spoiler alert, maybe you've heard of it. Roe did pass, which was in part, what led the Republican Party. You may have un- forgotten because <laughs> of the life forgotten. we're in right now, like because of the oh fucking God. world. <laughs> um, and that's uh. what led the Republican Party under Reagan, enemy of the pod. We did a whole episode about it to really embrace anti-abortion as a trademark of the Republican Party. Since then, there's been constant corroding of abortion access on both state and federal levels as we've discussed many times before. Um, But if you haven't been listening to the pod, it's okay, we're here to tell you once more. But I want to talk a little, you're welcome. You're welcome, we've always been here for you. Uh, But I want to talk a little about the the person behind Roe. And so her name is Norma McCorby, who you probably know as Jane Roe. She worked as a maid and struggled with substance use for many years. And she was chosen specifically by the pro-choice movement as this sort of poster child for abortion. She was like a real person seeking a real abortion, but um, they chose her specifically because they wanted a poor white woman who could not easily travel to other states for an abortion to um, be able to make this case compelling in their minds. And she was used in many ways um, by the movement and was Uh, kind of left out. She was left out of a lot of speaking um, at events for pro-abortion rallies and actions leading up to Roe v. Wade due to her lack of education. And um, she wasn't like eloquent in the way that they wanted. However, 
religious groups really picked up on her as this sort of perfect victim for this case and for these laws. And so they knew that she was a threat and they often talked about how they wanted to like deal with her and, you know, get her out of the public image in this way. And so after Roe v. Wade passed, Norma was paid um, nearly half a million dollars. And remember that she grew up poor. She worked as a maid. Um, she had been poor for her whole, whole life. So then she's being offered half a million dollars to be born again and join what's called Operation Rescue. And that's one of the largest anti-abortion groups in the U.S. And this was intended to like make it look like she'd seen the light and was now anti-abortion. And this was like huge at the time. Um, and the bribe remained under wraps until a deathbed confessional that she made in 2017, where she was like, yeah, I never believed any of that. Like, I'm still pro-abortion, but um, they would like prop her up in front of the camera, tell her exactly what they wanted her to say, and then pay her massive amounts of money. And she's like, yeah, I was going to do that. I had no money. Um, so I just think it's interesting to kind of understand more about her and that like both before and after the case, she was really kind of being used as like a prop on, on either side of this. But also I want to give a quick shout out to her lesbian lover, Connie, who um, yes. the Christians made her promise. It's like, honestly funny because this Christian group made you her pinky promise. promise. Literally they were like, okay, you can still live with her, but you like cannot sleep with her. And she's like, yeah, sure. We're definitely not sleeping together. Even though like they like were together, they'd been together for a long time, but she's like, yeah, no, 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 we're not. We're friends. Wink, wink. We're roommates. Wink, wink. Um, and yeah, they shared their lives together. They were like clearly in love. Um, so happy pride to Norma and Connie only. Exactly. <laughs> to us and Norma and Connie. <laughs> And that's the list. <laughs> exactly. Um, yeah. So when we were doing this, um, I had noticed like a week ago that a new documentary um, had just come out on HBO Max called The Janes. And um, when Kellen had suggested this episode, I was like, OK, I want to see what that's all about. And, you know, I guess that's what I'm bringing to the table today. So it's kind of like a little case study. But um, the Janes were, um, it was like a group of women who built an underground network for people seeking safe, affordable, and illegal abortions in late 1960s and early 1970s Chicago. And for this portion, I'm definitely going to be talking about women as it relates to reproductive health here, only because the people who were in Jane identify as women, and that's the framework they used in the 70s. But at as we've discussed at length, reproductive health affects people of all genders. So before this group of women came together, many people in Chicago got their abortions through the mob, which I thought was really interesting. Um, and they would like talk in code and they would ask things like, would you want the Chevrolet Cadillac or Rolls Royce? Meaning what level of abortion um and in the 60s, each of those cost $500, $750, and $1,000, respectively. So almost no one could afford the safest Rolls-Royce option. Um, also, at this time, you couldn't get a diaphragm or birth control pills unless you were married. So one of the first things these women did was tell other people to, like, go to the dollar store, find a cheap ring, put that ring on your left hand ring finger, go to the doctor and say that you were Mrs. So-and-so and get birth control pills that way. Um, just grow up and scam some men. That's what like people were saying from the beginning, you know? Um, <laughs> um, uh, so I'm not going to get into a lot of the other historical context of the time because obviously we have done that in, in length at other episodes but I do want to point out that what the Janes were doing was very much linked to the civil rights movement and also the anti-war movement in Chicago at that time um, but you'll you can look into that further on your own time um, but there was a part of the Chicago Police Department at the time called the Red Squad 
um, wonder why it was called that, right? And it was on the lookout for any quote-unquote social change. So um, obviously they were on the lookout for communism. They were on the lookout for basic, like, you know, anything. Anything that they could, they wanted to stop. And so communicating and coordinating with each other about abortions was considered conspiring to commit a felony and people had to be very careful um but most of the people involved called themselves radical communists so they felt passionately about continuing um this work like one of the um main people just like casually mentioned that she was friends with fred hampton no big deal so The women of Jane would meet at various women's houses. They would pass around index cards with contact information of pregnant women. What was their name, phone number, potential health complications, how far far along they were, and how much money they had available, which was often between zero and five dollars. And this was to determine how best to help them. And they would put signs up all over Chicago um, in pamphlets and elsewhere saying, pregnant, call Jane. Um, and once people called, they would like leave a message. It was like one of the people's home phone number. And they're like, if you have a message for their last name or Jane, leave it here. And it would just be like people leaving messages on this person's phone. So they would be connected with the women of Jane and be counseled before having an abortion. So this was very different from anything available at the time because everything was so hush hush. The counselors of Jane and and many of the women who founded Jane did so because they had had abortions that were extremely terrifying experiences. And so they would um, describe exactly what to expect in their abortion. And they realized that one of the main things that um, increases a fear factor around abortion is not knowing the information of what's going on. They also would never push women to tell them the reason for their abortion. They told them it was okay no matter what. Any reason was okay. And obviously this was very radical at the time. It was also the first kind of clinic that allowed women to pay what they could for an abortion. And they would have language on their posters and information being like, pay as much as you can so that, you know, the next person who doesn't have have as much can still have access to this because they needed to get medical supplies and stuff like that. So how did they do this? Um, For a long time, it seemed as though, even though it was under the radar, that like it was clear the Chicago PD must have known it was happening because they weren't really hiding the fact that they were doing this in the sense that, yes, they were being cautious and in the ways that I'm about to describe, but they also were advertising publicly. Doctors in hospitals would tell patients like, hey, I can't help you, but call this number. Um, And it was a way to basically circumnavigate that system. Um, But uh, the way that it generally worked was there was a room called the front, which was basically a big waiting room. um, And that location would change all the time. And then there was a driver who would drive um, in a car that rotated so that cops couldn't follow what was happening from the front to the place. And so the front was like the waiting room. The place was the area that the abortions actually took place. And so they had these two different locations that would be changing regularly. They said they could set up a clinic in 15 minutes and tear it down in five. Um, And many people who went through Jane described it as the best medical experience they ever had. And everyone involved, the patient, the Janes, the person performing the abortions, knew they were doing something illegal. So there was just kind of this inherent trust that everyone had in each other. So one thing I think that's really cool is there was this man named Mike um, who learned from a doctor how to provide safe abortions. So he is um, what they called an abortionist. Um, He was the main person in the beginning who was providing abortions for Jane. He never said he was an actual doctor, but at the same time, many of the women in Jane originally thought he was. Um, Once they found out he wasn't, they were like a little pissed, but then they realized if he's just a random person who has been providing these amazing, safe abortions, then he could teach some of the women of Jane how to do it too. So literally, these women who started this whole thing began to 
actually physically provide the abortions themselves. They provided a warm, safe, and nurturing environment that lifted each other up. And it was a space where women were just, like, these women were just sobbing on screen, just thinking about it and talking about it. So you could tell that it was just such a deeply transformative experience at the time. And, you know, if it was if there was any complication, it was really scary for people because they aren't actually medically trained. But, you know, they always had ways to send people to a hospital quickly. And it generally wasn't an issue. And Jane even provided a lot of follow up afterwards. So in 1972, and at this point, abortions were legal in a few states, the Chicago homicide deployment. Oh. The Chicago Homicide Deployment. De- deployment. <laughs> deployment. <laughs> <laughs> the Chicago Homicide Department busted into where Jane was operating that day. Um, basically, they got a tip about it. The Homicide Department was like, this is ridiculous. Like, we are dealing with murders and all this other stuff. We don't want to be doing this. But they kind of were forced by the hires up in the coppery. I don't know how it all works to do it. Um, the so, coppery, yeah. In the, it's like fuckery, but for cops, I don't yeah, know. Yeah, totally. In the um, copperedom, yes, know? exactly. <laughs> um, and so seven women from Jane were arrested, and even with all the publicity of that arrest, people continued to come in in droves for the abortions, and they ended up kind of changing the way that they had done it from before to a a more safer, longer process, but still safe. Then, of course, in January 1973, the Supreme Court decided that it was a choice between a woman and her doctor. Um, And so these women of Jane were so relieved, it automatically dropped the charges against them, which literally would have put them in prison for life. They were sentenced to 110 years or had that many counts against them. Um, And by the time Jane closed, it's estimated that over 11,000 safe abortions happened through their efforts. Um, So I know that's a lot, but I feel like it was such a cool thing to kind of just see a snapshot of what that was all about. Yeah, totally. Um, And I think people should obviously check out this documentary if they want to know more. Um, Also, I just wanted to recommend a couple of other podcast episodes that have interviews with members of the Jane Collective and like people who accessed abortions through it um, because I thought that they were super interesting. Um, An NPR podcast, I think it was the takeaway, but I can't remember for sure, but it's with Melissa Harris Perry um, and she talks to her mom about her work with the Jane Collective, which is really cool. Um, And also I think like some other people who were involved. Um, So that's just like another interesting kind of like opportunity to hear from some people who were involved in that work, especially because I just think it's like, I don't know, it's one of those things that it's like very few other projects have done this type of work so successfully. And like, it's something that we really need right now and should be thinking about. So um, I just wanted to let people know, like, Um, there are more things coming out about the Supreme Court decision all the time. And we did just learn as of today of this recording that it would be illegal to teach people how to do at-home abortions. Um, So like the people who give the educational information on like how people can provide themselves an abortion, that itself will be illegal. That transfer of information will be illegal. Yeah, well, I just wanted to share a couple of resources that already exist to teach you how to do that. One one of them being our episode on abortion care with Michaela um, from Buckle Bunny's Fund last year. And also um, there's this really great zine. If you just Google DIY abortion doula zine, it comes up. It's from uh, an abortion doula collective um, that's like really great and gender inclusive. And it has like a ton of really helpful information. So yeah, um, that's horrible. And also, it's great to have resources and information. Abortions will continue to exist. Um, We love abortions. (laughs) And I love all of you. Yeah, yeah. I, I just wanted to say, like, as we're looking ahead to this to kind of close out the episode, it is really great 
to think about like the fact that like Zoe said abortions have always existed like Laura demonstrated um you know abortions will you know continue to exist even under like really harsh penalties in the United States but it is also worth thinking about the fact that especially in a post 9/11 world we're dealing with such intense surveillance by the government and that um the right wing has at their disposal a police force unlike anything that the world has ever seen and so we're facing new challenges even at the same time as like you know listening to what laura was just saying i'm like okay so it's comstock all over again and um i just think that it's so important that you know we all be you know pro-abortion under any circumstance like there's no flinching there's no beating around the bush like you have to be pro-abortion you have to support it under any circumstances like abortion is healthcare. period it should be free it should be on demand and it should be without shame um and we've got a long fight ahead of us but um you know i think we've got to we have no choice but to fight um, and I think we can take a lot of like hope from the Janes and and other people who've been doing who were doing the work, and we'll continue to do the work. So, yeah, absolutely. With, yeah. With that being said, um, you know, give to your local abortion fund. Um, you know, we've brought on the Buckle Bunnies, so if you're in Texas, we love them. But literally every state has one, so find your local abortion fund, give money to them, whatever you can afford, because they're going to need it. Um, And many of them already need it. Um, And, you know, if you have any money left over, obviously we would love for you to support us on Patreon. Um, We're at patreon.com slash season of the bitch. You can also find us on Instagram and on Twitter at season of the B. We post a lot of updates there. Um, you can join our discord if you become a patreon subscriber we'd love to have you there you can chat with us at any time um don't have to wait for the weekly episodes and um you know rate review subscribe all that good stuff but uh good reviews only so <laughs> think that think that about covers it yay oh yeah love you love y'all love you. bye bye, bye. the bitch.